It is so good to see you. Welcome to 2020, brand new decade. Yeah, how many of you thought you'd never live this long? <laughs> I never thought I'd live this long. We used to watch a show called Space 1999 when I was home, and, uh, and it was like you, you could almost see the strings landing the, the sh- these uh, spaceships on the moon, you know? You could, you know, and they're jiggling back and forth. And you remember those days? All, all the kids are going, oh, I would never watch anything like that. It has to be perfectly good CG for me to watch it. But for us, that was like fantastic. I thought, 1999, I'll never make it to 1999. And now it's 2020. So I think I'm living on borrowed time. And after seeing some of you, I think you might be too. But it's good to see you here this morning. And uh, congratulations on making it to 2020. My name is Craig Jarvis. I am the lead pastor here at Village Church East. It's my privilege to be able to share God's word with you this morning. And so the first thing, I'm going to make a bunch of 2020 jokes this morning, but one of the first ones is uh, uh, I thought maybe I should start out on the right way. So first I'm going to make a confession. Starting out 2020 with a confession, and here's my confession. The message that I'm doing this morning is old. I've actually done this message two times before. I struggled with uh, what I was going to talk about this morning, um, and Michael will tell you this too, we, I, if you don't know this, uh, Michael and I and sometimes other pastors, other people will sit in and we do our sermon prep together. And, oh man, for the last couple of months, I usually have this planned out months in advance, but for the last couple of months I have had preacher's block. Uh, I couldn't figure out what in the world I needed to, to bring to you to start off the new year. So, and Michael, Michael was struggling too, and he probably wouldn't admit it because he likes to be a little, a little bit more, you know, Cool. Yeah, finesse. Yeah, yeah. But I like to be transparent. <laughs> so I, I did struggle for a long time. And usually, usually the, it comes a little easier. But um, then, then this past week, this past week, I was uh, actually um, asleep and I had a dream and I preached this message in my dream. And uh, so I thought, okay, that's, that's a pretty good telltale sign that maybe I need to do this. I mean, I've never actually preached. I've, I've spoken in French in my dreams, but I've never actually <laughs> preached a message in my dreams. And, uh, and I thought of some good angles to come at it with and all of this. And I thought, okay, when I woke up, I thought, that was weird. And so I looked at it fresh uh, the next morning, and it, it, just, it just flowed. So my confession to you is this is an older message. Actually, I've preached this. Uh, in the past. And here is the interesting part of my confession. I found out that I preached this message in 1999, in 2011, and now in 2020 I'm going to do it again. You notice any difference, I mean, between those, those dates? Every 10 years, right? Now that tells you a couple of things. First of all, I'm old. <laughs> nice, I like that. Pat's in the back going, amen, you are old. But second, it, it's interesting because this message has taken root in my heart in some pretty interesting ways, uh, to the point where I just can't let this one go. So I looked at it again, and the message is about Elisha the prophet. Have you heard about Elisha the prophet? Elisha the prophet followed, who's his mentor? Do you remember his name? It's very close. Elijah. Elisha the prophet followed Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet was an amazing man of God. He did many, many miracles. And uh, he's spoken of in the New Testament all the way through the Bible. 
Elisha comes along, and Elijah passes on his ministry to Elisha. And he prays a prayer in 2 Kings 2.10. He prays a, prays a prayer over Elisha, and he says, May you receive a double portion of the blessings that I have received. So I looked through Scripture. Do you know how many miracles Elijah the prophet did in the Old Testament? 16. Guess how many Elisha did? 32. 32. Elisha did 32 amazing miracles in the Old Testament. Elisha was the kind of guy who believed that God could do anything. I want to be like Elisha. Not just believing that God can do stuff for his people, but that God wants to do stuff for his people. And I think that's why God put this message on my heart. And here's why. In my walk as a believer, I have a tendency to get very pragmatic. My faith gets to be very reasonable. After a certain amount of time of walking with the Lord, I'm under the assumption that God will work this way, but he probably won't work that way. Or I'm under the idea that maybe God will do this, but he certainly won't do that. And it almost becomes such a routine in my life that I start selling God's power short. I start thinking that God will operate more along the lines of my reasonable, pragmatic ideas rather than what God maybe wants to do and wants to show me that he can do. I need to be reminded regularly that God is a God who loves to surprise me with what he can do and what he will do. And it doesn't, he doesn't do these great things in my life so that they slip through unnoticed. He does these great things in my life so that I can notice them, so that I can walk by faith more tomorrow than I am today. And he wants me to believe that he will go to extreme lengths for me. In fact, he bends over backwards for me on a regular basis. Now, maybe we don't understand that God who would urge us to walk by faith and then give us the power and the strength we need to actually win. We read about that in the Old Testament. You know, Moses took all those people out of Egypt, bravo, but that was a long time ago. And, yeah, yeah, and, and, and David saw some miraculous things, you know, a giant go down with a pebble, but that was a long time ago. Or, or Peter walking on the water, right? That's a little closer to us, a couple of thousand years, but it's still a long time ago. We know that God did amazing things for the church early on, but that was a long time ago. And we are, after all, 2,000 years after the book of Acts and all those amazing miracles that God did to start the church. But then I read this verse in Ephesians 3 and verse 20. Paul is like writing about the greatness of God. He's writing to this church at Ephesus, which means that through them he writes to us. And he finishes his prayer with this phrase. I love this phrase. He prays this prayer. Now unto him who is able to do, church, what does it say here? Far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us. I ask and think for certain things I believe God might be able to pull off. But then I read this verse and it says, Craig, you're wrong. God is able to do abundantly beyond more than you could ask or think. So it's a reminder to me that although Elisha lived like 4,000 years ago, maybe that God will still pull it off for me today. And the reason I think that is because of the way this verse ends. Look at how the verse ends. According to the power that is at work within, what's the next word? Us. 
If you know Christ as your Savior, the power at work that was at work in Elisha and Elijah and Peter and David and all of your favorite Bible characters, that same power is at work within us. It is the power of God. And it's even more than that because in the Old Testament, all of these amazing miracles that we see and that we, that we tell each other about, that we remind each other to walk by faith because God can do this kind of thing, that power now is indwelling those who come to know the Lord as their Savior. If you give your life to Jesus Christ, you are literally, in, according, according to the New Testament, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That means that the same power that was able to do all of those miracles of old is living inside of you. You take him with you wherever you go. So I ask you, we know that what he did in Egypt and the lengths he went to for all those people so long ago that are dead and gone, but what is God able to do in 1999? What is God able to do in 2010? What is God able to do in 2010? 20. God is providing. Here's the thing. We think about it almost on a regular basis like this because we think like, okay, God pulled this thing off for me in the past, but this one might be a little too big. We even move it into the, the small measurements of our lives. But in reality, God demonstrates to us that he is a God who rewards those who walk by faith and not by sight. And so my encouragement to you is this morning, and I think this is, this is the reason that we're, we're, we're getting to this, this story um, this morning, is because I think God is encouraging me as your pastor to remind you as our church, our church family, that we have got to be a church that lives by faith. We've got to reignite that belief in our hearts that started our walk with Jesus Christ. I mean, how many of you actually believe you go to heaven when you die? I sure do. Yeah right? Have you been to heaven? No. Have you seen heaven? No. Have you smelled it, tasted it? Any of your senses ever crossed the line? No. No. And if you have, I'd love to hear your stories. But we haven't. We believe God can pull that off. Why don't we believe he can pull other things off? So the story of Elijah, Elisha is simply this. Ben-Hadad is king of Aram. You don't know where that is. It really doesn't matter. He's a bad dude. Does not love God. Hates God's people. These are invaders in the land, and so he's decided to siege Jerusalem. Actually, besiege it. He's decided to surround Jerusalem for as long as it takes for everybody inside this city, actually Samaria, everybody inside Samaria, this capital city, to die of starvation. The goal of besieging a city is you wait till the people inside get too weak, or too dead to fight. And then you just walk over them when you go through. You cut off all of their water, you cut off all of their food supplies. Syria would, 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 would wait out these folks, Ben-Hadad, he's king of Syria, and he goes after Israel, surrounds Samaria, Jehoram is the king of, of Israel, and he is now under siege. This war that they're in results in some terrible famine. There's stories in the Old Testament of, of where this happens in the book of Kings uh, that talks about um, how bad this famine was. The king, Jehoram, he actually gets mad at Elisha because Elisha has done how many miracles, church? 32. 32. But he can't feed these people. So he gets mad at Elisha. 
He says, you're a man of God. You're supposed to be taking care of God's people. Let's see a miracle or two. You've done all these weird miracles. He's made an axe head float. He's done some weird different miracles like this, different individual miracles for different individual people. And the king is mad at Elisha because he has, he has predicted this would happen. He has predicted famine would come, and he has predicted that this would be a terrible time. But he has not provided anything to give them relief. So, so the king gets mad at Elisha. In fact, he gets so mad at Elisha, he has sent men to Elisha's house to take down the door and then take Elisha's head off. Elisha has a bunch of servants who work for him, and where we walk into the story, Elisha's servants are actually standing against the door while the men, the, the, uh, the, uh, the army, the, the, the guards of the king are trying to push the door down. This is where we walk into the story. Oh, let me tell you one other thing. The other thing that made Jehoram angry was because Elisha said, wait on the Lord. God will provide. Jehoram is seeing some terrible things, and he's been waiting, but he's tired of waiting on the Lord. Meanwhile, people are dying. Uh, they were eating food that shouldn't be eaten. Let me, let me give you a little bit of background so you know how desperate the situation is. This is actually one of my favorite stories of the Old Testament. In 2 Kings uh, 6.25, there was a great famine in Samaria because they were besieged, as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, before you lose your stomachs, let me just explain to you what's, what's going on here. The donkey's head is worth 80 pieces of silver. That's about $50. There's not a lot of meat on a donkey's head, but that's what people were selling these donkey heads for. All right? So you get a little bit of meat, you could survive for a little while. Dove's dung is probably not dove's dung. It probably is a word that means these small sea pods um, that were of small nutritional value. And each one of those, half a pint of, dove, of these pea pods we're going for $5 in our money today. In other words, these people were eating anything to stay alive. Now, if you think that's bad, Jehoram, the king of Samaria, takes a walk one night. And while he's walking, he comes across a scene too horrible to describe. Basically, people were dying, and one mother made a deal with another mother that when her child died, they would use that child, and then, anyway, all of that to say, they had moved into this area of cannibalism, and this king lost it. This is why he sent the guard to Elisha's house and basically said, I can't wait any longer. What we're seeing around here is disastrous. We're all going to die. People are doing terrible things to each other. And he blamed Elisha for the whole mess. In his rage, he sends out an executioner. And this is where we jump into the story in 2 Kings 7, verse 1. Elisha finally gets to, hear the, uh, to see the king. The king comes through the door. Elisha has a conversation with him. He backed off. He doesn't take off his head. He simply listens to Elisha. And Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, that's about uh, seven quarts. And two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. 
Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, now get this, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And Elisha said to that man, you shall see it with your eyes, but you will not eat of it. Now keep in mind, Elisha said this is going to happen. That's hard enough to believe. But when did he say this is going to happen? When did he say this is going to happen, church? Tomorrow. You have to understand, there is thousands of troops surrounding Samaria. They've been there for months. The people inside are reduced to paying life fortunes for a donkey head. They are eating whatever they can get their hands on. People are dying in the streets. And Elisha says, not only is God going to provide so that you're going to have an abundance of food for pennies, but it's going to happen tomorrow. And the captain of the guard, who was the king was leaning on him, probably because he was too weak to stand on his own. The captain of the guard said to Elisha what any reasonable person would say. Even if God should open windows in heaven and dump it out on top of us, how could it happen that fast? This thing is not possible. And Elisha said, you're going to see it, but you're not going to get to take it. Now keep in mind, he's not saying that I don't believe this could happen. It's just that I don't believe this could happen here. That fast, not under these circumstances. Why? Because it's been this way for too long. The horror has been around us for too long. How could God change it like that? It can't happen that fast. It's not that he's saying it can't happen. Sure, in 20 years we might be back up on our feet, but it can't happen that fast. Look over the wall. (laughs) How is this even possible? Hopeless. Despair, because there's the situation, the circumstances were too dire for them to have any hope. And church, what I want you to see here is that faith had been swallowed up by fear. This is why God reminds us that life is about living by faith and not by sight. The verse that leads up to this is interesting. In 2 Kings 6.33, this captain of the guard, his heart, he says earlier, we see a, a little picture into his heart, he says, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Why should I trust that the Lord's going to get me out of this situation? Because it's been this way for too long. The problem was his circumstances clouded his vision. So I have some insights for you on this one. If if you're interested. Some circumstances that cloud our vision. Circumstances that get us to take our eyes off the Lord and look at what's right in front of us. Stop living by faith. I think some of these reasonable ways of thinking get us off track. Number one, if things are this bad, maybe God has an agenda that excludes my welfare. If things are this bad, maybe God has an agenda and I'm not included in it. That is a reasonable thought but it is not a thought that is true. And here's why you can take that to the bank. God's intention for his children is not to leave them abandoned. All throughout Scripture, God sticks closer than a brother. All throughout Scripture. In fact, every 
religion on the planet views God as a transcendent God that can barely be known but not befriended. Christianity is the only exception to that rule. Where not only can God be befriended, but God came to us. Christmas, you ever heard of it? Jesus came to us. He was to be called Emmanuel because Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus came to us for one major purpose, among others, but one major purpose, so that we could see God. In fact, Thomas got the lecture in John 14. Thomas said, uh, you know, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And Thomas says, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus looks at Thomas and says, dude, man, have I been with you this long, and you still want to see the Father? You're looking at God. You have had breakfast with God. I have come to you for the purpose of you, of me being with you. And that's interesting. Christianity is the only faith that teaches that. In fact, in the end time, it's not that we go to be with God. Sure, we do that when we die. We go to heaven. We go to be with God in heaven. We separate our spirits. But in the end, if you look at the end of time, it's God that comes to be with us. Revelation 21. New heaven and new, new Jerusalem. Remember that? Come down from God is with us. His dwelling will be with us. Christianity is the only religion that teaches about a God that comes to be with us. And that is unique because that is a picture into how God views you. Enough to die for you, enough to give you blessings, enough to give you a future where He comes to where you are. We quote this verse all the time, Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things... Let's say it together, church. This is great. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's a great verse. The question is, do you believe it? All things work together for good. That means that tomorrow is better than today and the next day is even better than that. All things work together for good. Elisha kept saying this to the king, and the king said, listen, you've said it, and you've said it, and you've said it, and I've waited, and I've waited, and I've waited, but look at what's going on around us. God has excluded us from his plan. And Elisha says, you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. Number two, if things are this bad, maybe it's gotten beyond what God can fix. Now, this, this is the hole I fall into right here. Because I enter into situations where I'm thinking to myself, all okay, right, that's it. Throw in the towel. There is no way this situation can be fixed. This is beyond what anybody can fix. And I fall into this so often because I exclude the power of God to restore and redeem any situation, including the most broken. It's what he loves to do. When we're at our weakest, God's power is at its strongest. Maybe it's number three. Worst of all, if things are this bad, maybe there's no God at all. Maybe this whole thing is just a fantasy. There's no answer. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe God is not working here at all. The one common denominator in all of these things is we judge our circumstances by our sight by what we can see. And when we look at what we can see, we think to ourselves, throw in the towel, despair, it's all over. 
This is when, church, we need to remember that we are, we are children of God who walk by faith and not by sight. It is the thing that makes us different from the world because when the world looks at a situation, they say, give up. And when we look at a situation, we say, watch what God's power can do. And we say it today, and we say it tomorrow, and we, say it, and we believe that God can do it. We don't just hope it. We don't just pragmatically reason it through, saying, oh, God can do this. God. I've seen God do some pretty amazing things. And still, I fall into one of these three categories. Most of all, church, faith is the opposite of fear. What I see, I fear. But when I walk by faith, I believe. And God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. 2 Timothy 1.7. So you want to know what happens? That's what the guards said. If God were to open up windows in heaven and pour it out on us, it still can't happen in a day. Then we get introduced to four other men. You're going to love this. This is where the story gets really interesting. Verse 3, now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? Do you know what a leper is? Yeah, nasty individual, you know, you got things falling off, all right. So why are we sitting here until we die? So they said to one another, if we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the the city, we're going to die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So let us come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we'll live. And if they kill us, we will die. Now you should know something about these guys. Lepers are not welcome around, all right? They're at the lowest end of the economic scale. They only live by what they can get by begging. There's no jobs that they can have. There's no family that they have. If you have leprosy in this day, you're sent out of the city. So these guys are living on the outside of the wall. They get a little encampment right there. They're living on the outside of the wall in their tents or whatever they got probably not even tense. They're just laying there waiting to die. They're on the outside of the wall. The Syrians are not interested in them. They're interested in what's inside the city. So the Syrians are outside. They're they're surrounding the city. The people on the inside are dying. And these, these lepers are on the outside of the city thinking to themselves, okay, what are our options at this point? If we go into the city, they might let us in but we'll probably die in there because we have leprosy. They'll never let us in when times are good, but now, you know, maybe our families will want us around while they die. If we go to the camp of the the Syrians, maybe they'll let us live. Maybe they'll look at us and say, you know what, you guys just take some food and go on your way, you know, just get away from us. Maybe they'll let us go. So they... They, they, they reason it out in their minds and they think they're going to take their option to go out to the Syrians. Go to the enemy. If they go inside, they will die. But if they go out to the Syrians, they might live. It's so sad that we have to get to the end of our rope sometimes to attempt to believe that God will do something great for us, isn't it? <laughs> These guys are like, oh, we're going to die anyway. So they arose at twilight, they go to the camp of the Syrians, but when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was what, church? There was no one there. 
For the Lord had made, and, and you're thinking to yourself, why is there no one there? Here he goes. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, behold, the king of Israel has hired against us kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come up against us. So they fled away in twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and they fled for their lives." They think to themselves, Jehoram, he must have got a scout out. And the scout goes down to Egypt, and the scout goes over to the Hittites, and the scout says, we'll give you whatever we want, whatever you want. We're going to die anyway. Come over and fight for us. And so the Syrians hear this huge army, and they're thinking to themselves, oh boy. We, we got basically the entire world against us. Is it worth carrying on the siege? And they get so scared, they don't even pack up. They get on their horses and they ride away and they leave the gold and the silver and the food and the livestock and everything they brought with them, they leave it behind. And the lepers come across the bounty. So you know what the lepers did? <laughs> um, look at what the lepers did. When the lepers came to the edge of the camp, i got to read you this verse. I was going to skip over it. I'm going to go back to that verse, am I? I'm sorry. Um, i got, I got to tell you this, because when we get discouraged and we think to ourselves, God's not going to provide, we start doubting his power, we start doubting his interest in us, and we start thinking to ourselves, we got to try harder. And it's not a matter of trying harder. It's a matter of surrendering to God what is it. we got to look at God and say, okay, God, it's your timetable and not mine. That's hard, right? Okay, God, it's your deal and not mine. It's your, it's your plan and not mine. It's a matter of not trying harder. It's a matter of surrendering. I went to, a, I went to a, a university and sat through a class with a bunch of these university students, and they started explaining Christianity to me. They did not know I was a pastor. I'm sitting around this table, and I hear these students, enlightened Madisonian students, explaining to me what Christianity was. Actually, they were explaining it to each other, and I just sat there and listened. And their bottom line they came up with is, Christianity teaches you to pull up your, your socks yourself and, and do it. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my word, how did you get so screwed up on what Christianity is? You come to Jesus Christ, it is the exact opposite of that. You're saying, I can't do this on my own. I can't, I've tried to pull up my own socks. i tried to put on my own boots. I can't wade through this muck. I don't have boots deep enough. Christianity is simply looking at God and saying, okay, you're in control, I'm not. And then Paul says, you came to Jesus in faith that way. In Galatians, in the book of Galatians, he says this, why aren't you still living that way? But we get so used to our faith, right? It becomes so pragmatic and we start thinking to ourselves, God will do this, but he won't do that. And church, I'm here to remind you, let's, let's get into 2020 believing that God is not only capable of doing the impossible, but he'll do it for you too. Why? Because you mean that much to him. As it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Dare to believe God has windows in heaven with your name on them. These lepers did, out of desperation. <laughs> so they come to the bounty. And you know what they did? They did what you would do. They did what I would do. These guys have had nothing. They've been rejected their entire lives. They live in the dirt outside of the city. And now they win the lottery. 
When these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent, they ate, they drank, they carried off silver and gold and clothing, and they went, and what did they do, church? They hid them. Of course they did. Then they came back, they entered into another tent, and they carried off things from it and went and hid them. And why shouldn't they? Everybody inside the city is too scared to come out of the city. They were the brave ones, or maybe desperate enough ones. We are so much like these lepers. God, if you give me this, I promise. I promise I'll be generous with it. If you answer this prayer, I promise I'll, be, I'll join a monastery, whatever it is. This is how Luther started. You know, he got knocked off his horse. Did you know this story? A lightning storm, he thought he was going to die. And he's thrown to the ground and he starts praying to Saint Anne. If you get me out of this, I'll be a monk my whole life. And he survived. And he went home and told his dad, who, who paid for him to take a law degree way back then. He said, Dad, I'm going to be entering into this ministry. And his dad hated him for it. But he did. And he changed the world. If, I, if God gave me a million dollars, I could do so much good for others. I'd give it to the church. I'd bless those in need. And when God answers the prayers, we conveniently forget what those promises were. Truth is, church, God has been good to every person in this room. <laughs> every person in this room. You want to talk about the 1% truly? Uh, let, let's get political just for a second here. You know who the 1% is? You are. If you make $32,400 household income annually, you are currently in the 1% richest people in the entire planet. You might say, well, Craig, I don't make $32,400. Okay. If you currently have $4,300 to your name, that means everything you own, all of your assets liquidated, if it comes up to at least $4,300, that's $4,300, you are richer than half of the world's population right now. You are the 1%. We are the 1%. The question is, what are you doing with God's gifts now? How are you being a good steward now? <laughs> you don't need to get into a bad situation and promise God that he gives you a million dollars. The question is, what are you doing with God's gifts today? Our challenge is not lack of things. Our challenge is we may not be as faithful as we claim to be when God does provide for us. All right. Then they said one to another. The lepers look at each other. Verse 9. We are not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we're silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Therefore, come. Let us go and tell the king's household. Now that makes me smile because I'm thinking to myself, what worse thing can happen to a leper... <laughs> Then have leprosy, right? Sorry, I have a warped sense of humor. But it's still, like they're thinking bad things are going to happen. Their arm falls on the ground. Really bad things are going to happen to us. Bad things are happening to you. <laughs> so they would go back to Samaria and they would tell the king. And once they tell the king, all of Samaria is going to find out. And that's exactly what happened. They shared their blessings. Verse 11, then the gatekeeper called out as... As it was told within the king's household, he's a loud mouth. He starts talking to everybody. Then the people, verse 16, went out once they heard about this and plundered the camp of the Syrians so that a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel. That's seven quarts of the best flour and two seas of barley for a shekel. That's 14 quarts of barley for livestock, according to the word of the Lord. Do you know how much a sea of fine flour, you know how much a shekel would be worth today? One dollar. 
$1. You could feed your family for a month with $1. God is a God of the impossible. And I think the story is here not for us to simply know another story of the Bible. It's there to remind us that God is a God who loves to do the impossible. He loves to surprise us. God's attribute of grace poured out on us leads us to acknowledge his rightful place and our undeserved place. Here's the danger. We've got to give God space to work to do what he is doing. This story is not about getting everything you want when you want it. All right? This is so the opposite of prosperity theology. You have no idea. Prosperity theologians are right in front of politicians at the gates of hell, just so you know where you're standing here today, all right? Prosperity theology is the worst thing that has ever come out of some depraved mind. I'm not talking about prosperity theology. What I'm talking about is the fact that this story is is not about getting everything you want when you need them. I'm not going to tell you throw a stone against your worst giant, it's going to crumble. I'm not going to tell you that God will give you a child when you're 80 like Sarah and Abraham. I'm not going to tell you to go walk on water like Jesus let Peter do. Those were specific events God's grace poured out at certain times to teach those people certain lessons. But I am going to tell you, it's the same God. It's the same power at work within you. And God has lessons for us to learn about walking by faith that are just like the lessons that these folks learned so long ago. The principle is the same because the God is the same. God is still in heaven with bounty of grace. And there are windows with your name on them. God longs to be gracious to us. And the fact of the matter is, church, he has been. Isaiah thirty eighteen says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Does your faith in God drive your decisions? Are you willing to let your faith stretch? Faith is what makes us believers, but faith is the thing that keeps us walking after we give our lives to Jesus Christ. That kind of faith can save you to the uttermost. You want to hear the rest of the story? You want to hear what happened to the captain of the guard? Verse 17. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. What a fortunate opportunity. Remember, he's usually with the king. But on this day, the king said, why don't you go stand down at the gate? I don't need you to lean on anymore. You just go stand down at the gate. So the captain of the guard, the same guy, has now been stationed at the gate of the city. And guess what happened? And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God said he would when the king came down to him. Like a mob, the people from the city starving ran out of the gate And they found silver and gold and livestock and much more. But the captain of the guard never even got to taste it. Never got to experience it. He got to see it. He got to see those people coming at him like a wave. But he never got to experience the grace of God firsthand. When people move into faith, they move into a great place of hope. But when they give up on faith, they move into very tenuous circumstances. Do you know how many people in all of these years I've seen in my life bail on their faith? 
people closest, people closest to me. And the reason they bail on their faith, the one common denominator is they all look at their circumstances. And they say, God can do this, but God can't do that. God can fix this, but God can't fix that. They sell out for something cheap that will not last, that they can see. And it might look like relief, but it doesn't last. And they stop waiting on the Lord. So church, what do you believe God can do? What do you, what do you really believe God can do? The idea of anything? God can do anything? Well, he is all-powerful. But he is running an entire universe. Do you think he's that interested in you? I saw him heal my mom from cancer. The doctor calls my mom, still to this day, a walking miracle. We prayed for her, the church prayed for her. This was in 1998. Yeah. I saw him heal people from prayers that people have prayed. I've stood at several beds where people have been told that this person's going to die. And people pray. And they're still, they're doing great. I've seen God provide for my family in countless ways. When I, when I didn't think I knew what to do. Have you seen the grace of God into your life? Have you experienced what God can do? My question is, it's the same question I ask myself in the mirror. If I've seen God work these ways in the past, why do I doubt he would in the future? Dare to believe that he can handle your situation. Dare to believe he actually wants you to succeed. Dare to believe God is your cheerleader. He wants you to win. And when we win, we acknowledge the win was from him. Dare to believe God still has windows in heaven. So I only have one so what for you today, and that is this. And here it is. Where's Megan? Here it is, Megan. Make, make your vision in 2020, 2020. You like that, don't you? <laughs> so dry. Make your vision in 2020, 2020. Listen, I can get reasonable about my faith or I can get pragmatic about it or I can get just doggone crazy about it. And I would rather err on the crazy side at this point in my life. Here's the thing. Do you know what's happening in 1999? You didn't have to take your shoes off to get onto an airplane. Do you remember 1999? Was it that long ago we've forgotten about all of this? That's the first time I preached this message. And I said, live by faith. Fast forward 10 more years. You know what's happening in 2011? I wrote, I wrote some of this stuff down. The stock market was diving. Terrorists were decapitating Christians on national TV. The housing market was still tanking. Promises of jobs were diving. Do you remember people were jumping out of their windows committing suicide because of the way the economy was going? That was 2011. That's the last time I preached this message. And I said, live by faith. So 2020, you know what's happening today? Stock market's through the roof, man. If you got a 401k, bravo for you. Pastors don't get that, but I'm glad for you. <laughs> Make sure it shows up in the offering a little bit. The housing market is up. The stock market is higher than it's ever, ever been. There are millions of jobs. We have more jobs available than we have workers to fill them. Is economy great? Absolutely. Do you know what I learned from all of this? Stuff changes, but God doesn't. 
God doesn't. Is God swayed by any of this stuff? Is God swayed by the things we see with our eyes? Or could it be that he just uses all these things, the negatives and the positives, the hurts and the, and the good times, to just open our spiritual eyes a little bit more? we got people saying we're going to have war with Iran next. Does that freak you out? Or is it same God at work? And 20 years from now, I'll tell you, remind you of the story that we're going to war. I don't know what God's going to do tomorrow, and neither do you, and nobody does. But this I know, God is still at work. He doesn't sleep, he doesn't slumber, and he never wakes up in the morning and goes, I didn't see that coming. That's not God. I don't know what he has planned for the next 10 years, but I want to walk through all those 10 years, not by sight, but only by faith. Not believing that God will do what I expect him to do, but that God might do what I don't expect. I want to live by, I want to be like Elisha. Not believing that God can do stuff for his people, but that he wants to do stuff for his people. Listen, a lot has happened to me in the last 10 years, and a lot has happened to you too. I just became a part of a group that started this new church. I am not where I thought I would be 10 years ago. And I'm probably not going to be where I think I'm going to be 10 years from now. I'm not doing what I thought I would be doing. I never thought I would be a part of this amazing plant, this amazing church. I'm without a dad. My wife is without a mom. That's happened in the last 10 years. Circumstances will always change. But don't let circumstances drive you into fear. Remember the captain of the guard and the lepers. The captain of the guard on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And your answer, church, is? You bet. You bet. You bet. Dare to believe that God still has a plan, and he still has windows in heaven with your name. God works within you both to will and to do according to, your, to his good pleasure. So make your vision of God's grace 2020 in 2020. And like Paul, I finish with this prayer. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. The power that works within us is God's power. So whatever you're asking or thinking God for, that God can do, bump it up a notch. Will you do it? Just bump it up a notch. Because he's able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. Dare to believe that God is in the business of doing the unbelievable. And that God has a window in heaven with your name on it. What do you think? Is that hopeful? Yeah, good. Because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't even know what's going to happen today. But I know God's in control. And I'm not. And you're not. But he's still able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for today that we got to talk about faith, that we got to introduce the new year by reminding ourselves that you are an all-powerful God. And although you run the universe, you still are that interested in our lives. In fact, you know every hair that is on our head. It's amazing to us in Scripture how you often remind us that you're that interested in us.
And I'm so grateful for that because we have a tendency to think that you've forgotten about us, you have a different agenda, or maybe you're not there at all. Remind us, Father, to be a church, to be a group of people that walk by faith and not by sight. And I pray, Father, that no matter what direction the world goes in in the next 10 years, whatever happens, your church would remain to be a church that walks by faith, regardless of what they see. Help us to lead the way at Village Church East. And thank you for our time that we got to talk about this this morning. May you be truly in charge of this church and our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.